0: Amen. Children are dismissed back to Praise Factory, and if you'd open your Bible to Genesis 20, we're going to be continuing our our series. From there, we're going to read Genesis 20, and then um, we will be praying for the Fulani people of the Central African Republic. Now, uh, you might not have known up until this moment that there is such a place as the Central African Republic. I had never never heard of this, but uh, if you know Chad and Sudan, right underneath that is a country called the Central African Republic. It's right above the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, I, I, I find that praying for the world, praying through the world is teaching me things about the world I did not expect to know. There's an entire country of people. Uh, this this particular group in there, 200,000 uh, people uh, who, who are committed to the tenants of Islam uh, who do not know Christ. And so we're going to, we're going to pray that they would come to know him. Um, It's amazing to me that, that, that the world can seem so explained when we watch the news. And yet uh, when we, when we, when we think about the world and we pray for the world, we find out that, uh, that there are places we didn't even know about where people are living lives as real as our own. Uh, so we're going to pray for the Fulani people. But we're going to read Genesis chapter 20, starting in verse 1, and read to the end. Let's, let's read. The scripture says, From there Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them, all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom, a great sin. You have done to me things that have ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me. In every place which we come, say of me, he is my brother." And God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, having heard this text, having heard your word, having heard what you spoke And we come believing that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you speak through these words today. That's what it means when we say that we believe the word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That this story, this account of the real life of the real man, Abraham, and his real wife, Sarah, and this real king, Abimelech, has meaning and application for us today. And so we pray that we would come... To it this morning, Lord, knowing that you speak to us in your word and knowing that there is good in it for us to build us up, that there's good in it to rebuke us for our sins, that there's good in it to encourage us to remain on the path of of following you and that there's good in it to point to the grace and truth of the gospel. We lift up the Fulani people, Lord, 200,000 people, who do not and cannot know you because the word is not in their language because no one is there preaching to them. And we pray that you would open an opportunity for some to speak the truth in the Central African Republic. We pray, Father, that you would encourage our hearts and you would help us to know you better and to follow you in the way that you deserve because you've been good and kind to us, Lord. We pray this in the precious name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, I'm about to tell you something that, that once I tell it to you, you cannot go back. Have you, You've had this experience. Once, you, once something's pointed out to you and you notice it, you can't unnotice it. Right? You know, it's like, oh. You know, like, like in, a, in, a, in a song that comes on the radio, a missed beat. You know, like you, you hear it every single time you hear that song again. Uh, there, there was a man... He lives out in Pittsburgh, and he, he knows a comedian in, in Pittsburgh, and, and the man talks about how he gives directions Pittsburgh style, not you know drive 1.5 miles and then make a left on this road, but, but by way of landmarks. And so he tells this joke over and over again, and, and in one occasion of the joke, this man, Mike Nielsen, hears his friend say, turn left at the building that used to be a pizza hut. And this man then realized, Mike Nielsen, that, that he had seen over and over buildings that used to be Pizza Huts. And that, and that there were many of them. Now, you might not know this. Pizza Hut is, is named Pizza Hut. When in the 1950s, when, when these two gentlemen opened this store, they could only fit eight letters on their sign. And so they decided that, of course, since they were selling pizza, that the first five letters on the sign ought to be Pizza and they only had 3 space for 3 letters left and so they chose the word hut right? And then Richard Burke, an architect, came to them and said, I will, or they went to him and said, we need a design for our stores. Our first hut actually doesn't look much like a hut at all. It looks kind of like a a brick building. Um, It's just kind of this rectangular little thing. You can go and find it. And it's got a plaque on it, which you should read. Um, And the the plaque just exclaims, this is the first pizza hut. And so they came up with this design for, for the rest of the pizza huts. And you know this design in your mind, right? It's made up of of trapezoids all on the bottom. The windows are trapezoids, and then there's these trapezoid things that that support the rest of the building. But then the roof, right, is these, these gables, but there is this distinctive, what you could call a protrusion coming out of the top of the building, right? And as you drive around, you will see what used to be a pizza hut, I was driving home um, from, from having uh, done a kind of a whirlwind tour of our state in, in one day. I had a couple of places to go and I was, I'm zipping through uh, Cambridge and I'm like, I have to swing a U-turn and pull into this parking lot and take a picture of Plaza Tapatia in Cambridge because it used to be a pizza hut. <laughs> and I then posted it to UTBAPH on Twitter and said, look, Cambridge, Maryland, used to be a Pizza Hut. And it, you know, like, this is, this is the, maybe some of the smallness of my life, but it got favorited on Twitter by U-T-B-A-P-H, and I was like, yes, you know, this is, this is great. This is my inner geekiness coming out. Um, you will now see them everywhere, buildings that used to be a Pizza Hut. I want to share a, a simple story uh, from the life of Abraham. Uh, a story that you're probably going to say, I have heard this before because you have heard it before. Uh, but but you are, you're going to see something emerge in Abraham's character and, and, and the way that our, our, we, we conceive of our Christian lives working or the lives of other Christians working is, is, that, is that once they believe the gospel they should leave behind their former selves. They they should leave behind their former character and those old ways of living. You'll hear people's testimonies. They'll say, before I knew Christ, I used to live this way, and now I live this way. But there come these moments in their lives where you see their behavior on display and you say, I recognize that. That's from your old life. That's what you used to be, right? That's what you say you used to be, but maybe you're just who you used to be with a fresh coat of paint and a new sign. How, how do we explain the apparent contradiction? We, we 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 are living in a time right now um, in in our uh, in our in our news cycle where there's a lot of dwelling on the fact that some extremely public Christians are not as Christian as they seem or so it seems and this is seen as a as a great stain on the church or on the cause of Christ I think God has provided this story to us to help us I want to I want to kind of by by way of analogy bring us to a, a point of understanding and peace that that even though we used to be a pizza hut Right? There can be hope in our, in our life. There can, there can be truth. There can be consistency in the life of a Christian, even though people might recognize their old lives in them many times. Um, in, we, we see the story that I, I read in Genesis chapter 12 as well, where Abraham heads down into Egypt and Pharaoh takes Sarah and brings her into his household. And we see Abraham lied in that story as well, and Sarah lied for him. And, and we see similar effects. And And so... Um, We would expect this in Genesis chapter 12, right? We would expect that God calls Abraham, a man who is a sinner and an idolater, to serve him and and then confronts him with this sinfulness that's in him. And we would expect that the sin would not repeat. But here we are in Genesis chapter 20 and we see that the sin has repeated again. We expect failure from... A new Christian. We expect to recognize parts of their, their old life and their old sinfulness, but we don't expect it from the great ones. And listen, we are we are past Genesis chapter 15 where, where, where the Bible says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is a, an epic moment in the story of the scriptures. Abraham is highly regarded in the Bible. Psalm 105, verse 8 and 9 says that God remembers His covenant forever. This is, this is a psalm that's probably written a thousand years after the events of Abraham's life. God remembers His covenant forever. The word that He commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that He made with Abraham. Remember that the Lord Jesus, when He comes, is called in Matthew 1.18, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham is a highly significant figure he is he is one of the great ones in the scripture and yet here we see his sinfulness on display in the bible for all to see the exact same sin he has committed again well let's let's talk about how we how we explain this how we think through this uh, so so he tells the sister lie again she is my my sister um, let's let's show a little bit of grace and compassion to Abraham in the sense that he is probably caught in a habitual sin this is something that he's done over and over again something he's done so much that he cannot even recognize it anymore you'll you'll recall in the Bible, in Isaiah chapter 6, that when, when Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up in the temple, that he is immediately confronted with his own sin, the sins which, which are common in his culture, which perhaps he does not even recognize in himself, but which, which seeing the, the presence and the holiness of God, that, that God's presence and holiness draws this out from him. What does Isaiah say? He says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. Lying in this manner, in this way, might be a very common thing given the times. Take a moment, more like 15 seconds, and think. You can think about this later. Think about what is it that you do? What is it that that you think about? What is it that you are tempted to rationalize in your own life? What, what sins which are contrary to God's Word are you willing to say, that's okay because everyone else around me lives that way too? This is socially acceptable and therefore that means it's okay. It's alright. It does not make it so. It just means that everyone around you is sinning in the same way. Abraham may be sinning in a way that he doesn't even realize or he has slipped back into a pattern without even noticing it. Abraham tells this lie. The king comes and takes Sarah again. A different king brings her into his household. God, though, graciously confronts Abimelech with this sin. Imagine having this kind of dream, thinking you had a great day, newcomers on your land you've, you've heard rumors of the beauty of this woman you have, you have brought her into your home this is, a, this is a good day we've made a good acquisition it's good to be the king and then in the night God himself comes to, to you in a dream and says you are a dead man imagine having that kind of dream I have, I have dreams like I, I drive onto a bridge and then it collapses you know, I have dreams like like uh, I've got I've to pay a bill and there's no money. I have dreams that I have to preach a sermon. How in the world does this happen? And I don't have notes. I have no message. It's like I had all week to think about what I was going to say Sunday. How am I here? And I wake up in like a cold sweat. Those are scary. <laughs> Imagine having a dream and God himself saying, you are a dead man because of what you've done. You will die for this sin. This is another man's wife. You have transgressed a sacred boundary. But Abimelech had not approached her. She was in his household. He had taken her, but he had not been with her yet. He had not yet pursued her. And so he appeals to the Lord. He appeals and he says, he says Are you going to kill me? I'm innocent. You're going, to, you're going to punish me for this? I'm innocent of any sin. Did not the man himself say to me, she is my sister? And did not she say, he is my brother? I did this in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands. I think this is an interesting development. Uh, Abimelech appeals to the idea that there are different degrees of wrong. Many times, I think, evangelicals can, can become guilty. We can, we can so flatten the idea of sin. We can say, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All sins are equal in the eyes of God. This is true. All sins are an offense against God's dignity. Yes, but we can, we can make it seem like certain sins are just as bad as other ones. They are in, in one sense. But there are degrees of sin. There are, there are differences in sins committed. There are sins which, which in a, an economic sense before the world are less bad than others. There are sins in God's eyes which are of a greater degree of heinousness. Uh, Puritan William Perkins points out that there are degrees in committing sin, uh, very much the idea uh, how if, if, if you were to, to go to the to the pool, you know, you don't know how, how, how icy the water is, and so what do you do? You maybe test it with your toe or with your hand before throwing the whole body in. There are degrees of involvement with sin. Perkins draws out from James chapter 1, uh, verses 14 and 15, this Scripture, where he says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, and here's a here's an image, the image of, uh, of of the the birth of a child. Then, desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Perkins draws forth four degrees of sin four degrees of increasing sinfulness and I, and I think in some sense that abimelech is appealing to this idea that that whoa 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 you know let's let's think about this for a minute i, I think if god we're going to give you time after he says you are a dead man if you're not dead it's like this is a good strategy to say hey we could, we can talk about this right like let's 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 kind of think about what's going on here and maybe maybe step it down a couple of notches. Maybe I could just like be kind of a dead man. Right? <laughs> this would be good. I could just be partly dead and and you know and, and so so think think through this with me for just a second. This is what Perkins says. He says he says that sin begins with temptation. And he, he uses two degrees in terms of, of temptation. He talks about the idea of abstraction and then of allurement, okay? Abstraction is, is we're all to be living toward God, right? We're to be walking in the fear of the Lord, walking in the ways of God and in, in the ways of His commandments. And allurement is, I mean, abstraction is, is when we take our eyes off of the ways of God and we say, Hey, what's that over there? right? Abimelech could be, could be, should be living in this place where he's like, I exist to serve God, and one wife is probably enough, and I, and I shouldn't constantly be on the prowl for for people to add to my harem here, and, and so, so I'm going to live in a way that's righteous and holy before God, and then he's like, whoa, who's that, right? And he turns his mind off of living towards God, and then allurement brings him closer towards temptation, i could I could add her to my household right they they said that she 's his sister that 's that 's what people are telling me you know and so now he 's getting closer and closer there's a there 's a distinction there is the conception stage where you give consent to sin and resolve to commit a sin. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire that 's the the first stage, but desire when it it is conceived okay here's my plan to commit sin here's how i'm here's how i'm going to do it here's how i could get away with it here's how how no one will know or here's why it's okay the the rationalizing and the the resolving to say yes i'm going to go for it i heard a pastor once say that that on average and i don't know if this is statistically true or not in his own experience, he said that, that he believed that this time between temptation and the conception of a sin lasted around three to five seconds. And in the years since I've heard that, I've thought, man, that's, that's probably true. A temptation crosses our mind and you can say, wow, let's think about that. Or you can say, no, no, not going to go there. No, and press it down, and crush it. Desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. There is the birth of sin, there's the committing of the act. And then, and then a fourth stage Perkins calls perfection which is sinning by custom where John would say in his letters uh, no one who practices sin is of the father or is born of God no one who is a believer practices sin this is, this is when you have said it is okay I am good with this I believe that God will not punish me for this or I'll confess it later and by custom you then begin to commit that sin over and over and over again Perkins believes that James is saying that, that, that when that lifestyle reaches full growth, it brings forth death and condemnation. What is, what is Abimelech saying here? He's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. I am, I am maybe, and maybe he's not, I don't, don't believe he's saying this in his head, but think about what he's arguing towards God. He's saying, okay, you know, temptation. Yeah, I've consented to, to bring this woman to mass, but, but I've not tried to make her my wife. No, no, no. No, no, no. I've not gone anywhere near her. And, and I, was, I was given bad information. I, I, don't, I don't think I'm totally guilty. I think that, that our legal system uh, is built on this, this idea that, that we can determine guilt and then later apply sentencing. That, that we can say, you are guilty of a crime you have trespassed. And Abimelech has indeed trespassed against the Lord and against Abraham and against Sarah here. But to what degree of guilt is he guilty? Criminal law speaks about mitigating circumstances, circumstances which which would decrease or increase the level of guilt. And Abimelech here is making an argument that, whoa, I am not guilty, perhaps in a way where I am worthy of death. Let's talk about this. God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Think about, Abraham has... Has done a, a grievous thing here, and he has lied about who his wife is, and his wife has once again cooperated with him in this sin. But God is confronting something in Abimelech, his own temptations, perhaps, his own sinfulness. He's warning this man against his, his polygamous lifestyle. Perhaps he's confronting one who takes women into his home against their will warning him of judgment by giving him this instructive example and god is saying yes i allowed you to stray into these tempting circumstances because of the wickedness of your heart but i kept you at this point to show you my grace and my kindness he's giving abimelech an opportunity to repent here What do I do? He's thinking in his heart. The Lord says, Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, if you refuse to repent, if you refuse this warning, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. If you allow this sin to be fully grown, it will bring forth death. I think I see the message of the gospel there. Do you you hear it? The, the idea of, of someone going along in their life, not perhaps realizing, as was said earlier, that their sins are like scarlet, that, that their sins are evidence against them, and that, and that the marks that are on them mark out the fact that they are worthy of condemnation, and perhaps they don't even know it. And the Lord says, come, let's reason together. Look at your sinfulness. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And the person, when a a human being, hearing confrontation of their own sinfulness, says, yes, I am a sinner, they find the wages of sin might be death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ taking our sins and our guilt upon himself going to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins in our place, that we might be free from our sins. The the wonderful image in the Bible of this horrific, scary cup full of all of the wickedness of the world, and Jesus saying in the garden, Father, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me. Don't, don't make me drink down the wrath of all the punishment of, you, of the, the sins of humanity if there's another way. But there being no other way. The perfect Son of God, the righteous man, drinks that cup, drinks it dry so that when you and I are eventually standing before God in judgment, and He says, you have committed many sins, and we go and we peer over the edge of that cup to see what wrath is in there. Those who believed in Christ, the cup has been drained for them. We peer over the rim and look in, and there's nothing left. Nothing for us. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you do not repent, God says to Abimelech, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. Give her back. You will be healed. It's interesting, this, this point here, uh, at, which, at which God says, give her back and he will pray for you and you shall live. I'm like, when we, when we're, if we're ranking people on a level of like, Horrible sinners in the story. Uh, Abraham's up there; he's the top, right? He's the mastermind here. Sarah kind of goes along with what Abraham has to say, and Abimelech is the victim here, even though he has he has transgressed. And so it's like, wow, why does Abraham get to pray for him, and and he'll be healed? Um, I'm going to probably jump ahead in in, in, in what I'm going to say here. You don't know that, so I don't know why I'm telling you. Uh, Abraham is a prophet of God. He's the agent of God. He's the one whom God has made a covenant with, and even though he behaves badly, God is working with him. God's working with him. Uh, Is there ever a sinner in the entire history of the church who has been confronted by someone who is not a sinner? Ever? Ever? Has has anyone ever heard a rebuke from, from another believer where where they've said, hey, you know, you're not you're not living quite in the way that you should. You ought to, to repent of that or or turn from this sin. Has has anyone ever said those words who's not a sinner themselves? Are we, are we imagining for a moment that Abraham in in the eyes of God is a worse sinner? than all the other sinners who ever sinned. It's always sinners confronting sinners, isn't it? It's never that anyone is saved or made right with God because of their exceptional holiness. No one earns the right to be used of God because of their goodness. No, it's the goodness of Christ that saves. And so... Let's just pull back for a second and think about our culture and think about the fact that sometimes we go into work and someone's like, you're a Christian, right? What do you have to say about this person in public who's committed these sins? Are they, are they a Christian? Yeah. Well, t- all Christians are repentant sinners. They, they ought to act in a way that's, that's pleasing to the Lord, but, but are, we, are we surprised? And is our faith in the church shipwrecked when we find out that someone has sinned? No, they ought to repent. They ought to be encouraged to be held accountable. But the the message of the church does not go forward on the righteousness of its people. We all confess our lack of righteousness when we enter the church by believing in the gospel. We all confess our sins. Abraham is caught in a sin here. What's important is the fact that he needs to repent and whether or not he does that. Not whether or not he maintains an absolutely perfect lifestyle. Because there's no person who lives a perfectly righteous life except the one, the man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, what Abraham does is wrong. But Abraham is not the star. God is the star. God's gracious righteous confrontation of Abimelech is what turns Abimelech back to the path of righteousness. And God is raising up an instrument to use in this circumstance to rebuke Abraham. And we're going to see that right now. It says in verse 8, Abimelech rose early in the morning. He called all his servants and he told them these things. He's like, hey guys, remember yesterday we brought Sarah here and Sarah's going to be my, my next wife. You know, and... And and it was like she's my sister. Yeah, not true. So you know, good thing. Let's let's keep this like one or two day moratorium on on marrying new wives, right? You know, that's or let's do. Let's get get rid of the whole marrying new wives thing. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we should do that. Um, he tells his servants, and the men were very much afraid. They realized perhaps, even though they are they are not following the Lord in the way that they ought maybe they're not worshiping the one true God they realize they have transgressed this boundary here and they are afraid of being punished the Bible says that that what is what is true about God is revealed from nature that God is powerful and that he's righteous and that he punishes sin that's Romans chapter 1 and so, so he tells, Abimelech tells his staff and they, they gather everyone. Abimelech calls Abraham to him then and says to him, what have you done to us? How have I sinned against you that you've brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? You've done to me things that ought not to be done. You, you claim to follow the one true God and you've done this unrighteous thing. What did you see that you did this thing? Like What was so wrong with us? What was so horrible about us that you thought that this was appropriate or okay that you could sin against us? So Abraham is confronted. When Christians sin against each other, they ought to be confronted. If I sin against you, you ought to come to me and say, You sinned against me when you did this, particularly if I don't know. When someone sins publicly, They ought to be publicly confronted. When someone is put forth as an example of righteousness in the culture and they sin, it is good for the culture to see the church say, that's not right. But in our rock-throwing, Tolerant society. Isn't it amazing that that we live in this society that champions tolerance, and yet if you if you read the comments on any news article, uh, it seems like there's there's thousands of people out there who are charged with incredible degrees of toxicity, just spewing all kinds of nastiness all over the internet. We 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 don't we seem to make up our minds and conclude that someone is guilty before asking them any questions i think there's an important principle here abimelech says why have you done this not like why have you done this and now we're going to crush you to death he says why have you done this and then he waits listening for abraham to explain himself why did you do this what were you thinking is it something about us that made you think that this was okay can't recall exactly where it was. I cannot find the quote, but Pastor Mark Dever of Capitol Hill Baptist Church has said that Christians, and this is perhaps me saying this, Christians above all people ought to make extensive use of the question mark before we use the exclamation point. Why did you do this? To explain this to me. Tell me. Tell me what you were thinking. Because because we ought to be able to see that, that yes, sin will happen because people are sinners and they ought to be held accountable but there are degrees and differences in terms of the sins committed. Our society, I think, in greater and greater degrees is, is using this banner. We say that we are a tolerant, enlightened society but more and more I think that we are becoming a society that indirectly uses the internet to use shame and force to crush those who, who sin against the established morality of the pulpit. And we use shame and force to crush dissenting opinion. We, Christians, among all people, ought to ask more questions and withhold judgment and wait for testimony before condemning. Abraham answers. Here is his defense. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. His first defense is, I was afraid. I was afraid of the fact that I was in a sinful culture. I was afraid of the fact that I thought that if I was honest, that that you would kill me because you don't worship the, the true God and have the same morality as me. I think that this is incredibly instructive for Christians. Do we not live in a culture that, that to greater and greater degree as time passes no longer shares the morality of the Bible? And and we may be tempted to think, well, you know, our culture does not know this and so um, I am I am going to... I, I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna live in a different way out of fear i'm gonna pull back from from the culture and, and from the the, the way of, of living that i'm commanded to because you know those principles were true back then and we could live this way in a christian culture but we can't live that way anymore can't always tell the truth can you can i if i tell the truth someone will find out what i think about these things and then maybe i could lose my job maybe they'll they won't like me anymore i was afraid This is the first offense, isn't it? Aren't these the words of Adam when God confronts him? Why are you hiding? I was naked and afraid, so I hid myself. The Bible says that we're to walk in the fear of the Lord. Fear God more than we fear others. I would say this to Abraham. Now, I am not. I was not walking in his sandals when he was, but, but from the vantage point of several thousand years later, looking at this, it's like, if they kill you, they kill you, but trust in God who made a covenant with you and told you that you would have this child, that he is going to protect you. You were afraid. We all feel afraid. We sang this morning, I will not fear God's promise is true that doesn't mean that we don't feel the emotion of fear but it means that we don't allow that emotion of fear to dictate our actions we trust in the Lord and don't lean on our own understanding and in all our ways acknowledge him Uh, second line of defense is he says technically I wasn't lying right? That, that here, here is my family tree and here's how it all breaks down. And so in some sense, this is true what I was saying. But I think we can all say that part of a truth, which is a half truth, is a lie. And so what he ought to be saying here is, is I misled you. I thought that if I lied, I would be safe. He's seen this in the past and it it did not work for him. And then he says in verse 13, and this is our habit everywhere. This is what we say. I asked my wife to, to do this wherever we go to say, he is my brother. What he's confessing here is that his own habits and his own fears became this pattern of behavior which led him and his wife into this sin and drew Abimelech in as well. Those of us who are married, need to be careful that in our agreements with our wife, in our agreements with your husband, that you not be drawn into sin because of the, the fears or, or the, um, the anxieties, the patterns that, that can be brought into a marriage because of, of, of who we are in our culture. We can be drawn into sin by the desires or the, the rules which are, are put into place by our spouses. We need to be to be careful to say, hey, you realize this, this could get us in trouble here at some point. And gently, kindly confront our spouses. Either Abraham or Sarah should have spoken up at some point and said, you know what, this probably is not good. This is not going to work. And so Abraham confesses here. He acknowledges that he sinned and he explains the reasons why. Here is where I would have gone into that explanation of the fact that the church is full of hypocrites. The church is full of sinners. And the truth is we are not the star. We ought to live righteous lives. We ought to call each other to account when we commit sins. We ought to say, hey, that's not right and you ought to stop doing that. But why? Because... Believers ought to never ever sin again because the standard ought to be once you become a Christian, you ought to know exactly how you ought to live for the rest of your life. No, that's impossible. James says there's no one who doesn't sin. But what we ought to do is to say, repent of this sin because that is good and righteous and shows your devotion to Christ. Christ. Repent of this sin because continued persistence in this sin draws you away from Christ. Repent of this sin because continued persistence in this sin damages the reputation of Christ in the eyes of those who see the church. Our perfection is not the message. Christ's perfection is we ought to be seen as responding to the message of the gospel and repenting. But well, we see Abimelech's settlement. It says that um, Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned his wife to him. This, this gift is a, a gift of testimony. Many times in our house I will say to my children, right, we, we have uh, around, around bedtime, they will say, can we have ice cream? And I will say, it is bedtime following this ice cream. Should you choose to consume this ice cream, you are doing it as a testimony that you will then not complain and go to bed. Right? In Bible terms, let this be a testimony against you. Right? I am buying your cooperation with this ice cream. You, you choose to consume it, you then choose to go to bed. Right? We want ice cream. Okay, go ahead and eat it. And then sometimes it works like it's supposed to, and sometimes it does not. But what we have here is Abimelech saying, I am setting out this gift. I am giving this gift to you. And this is proof that I did no wrong. I I trespassed, yes, but, but I did not trespass to the point of dishonoring Sarah or dishonoring myself. And if you receive this gift, you acknowledge my righteousness and innocence. And so, so he gives Sarah back. I love, somebody out there laughed when I read this. I, I put a little twist of irony uh, on the way that, that Abimelech says is this. He says, he says, my land is before you. Dwell in it where it pleases you. Here is a gift. And then he says to Sarah, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It's a sign of your innocence. Like, don't be playing this game anymore. You know, here you go. And, and they take it. Here's a gift of land. Here's a gift of money. And they testify to, to, to Abimelech's innocence. I want to make one point and then close. There's something important here. I think that, that Christians ought to see this as instructive. We as a, as a culture, I think as, as social media and texting and email, depersonalize our relationships with other people. There's something great about being able to say, you know, the meeting is canceled by text message. But more and more as we experience conflict with other people we fail to practice any kind of reparation we fail to pay people back because we it's just so easy to to live separate lives and to say it's over i will send an email and be done with it and there's no closure abimelech here says this is evidence that i am innocent and abraham and sarah receive it and accept it this is not hush money. This is, this is Abimelech is innocent. And so if anybody says, well, I heard that he took you and made you his wife, she can say, nope, look, these sheep, this land, this money is evidence of the fact that, that he is innocent. We ought to settle as believers and, and work towards closure. Well, the scripture closes and says that Abraham prays and Abimelech's household is healed and children, uh, the, the, the birth of children resumes here. Uh, I think this is instructive to believers in that we ought to remember that God's people can fall into sin and be God's people. As long as we are in this life, in this body, we will stray from the gospel at times. We will fail in faith and we will sin. The important thing is when confronted, we need to remember the gospel. We need to remember that the gospel is for Christians too. The gospel is especially for Christians. The the world listening to the church ought to hear that God's graciousness and kindness is for all who will believe in the Lord Jesus and repent that the message of the gospel is when a believer fails, a believer ought to say, I acknowledge my sinfulness and my wrong, and I repent of it. Sometimes they need to eat the bitter fruit of the seeds of sin that they've planted. But believers ought to realize that they are not beyond, behind or beyond the, the grace of God. They are not unable to be used by God in God's redemptive plan. The way in which they are used may change, but they are not beyond God's grace. And so they ought to remember the gospel and remember that the gospel says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. They are not separated from the Lord. And so they ought to strive for purity. If you get caught in a sin again and again and again, and you see it and you are reminded that you used to be a pizza hut, you know, I I am a sinner. There it is again. Remember the gospel and get back to striving for purity. Stop being a target for the devil in terms of temptation. Maybe you need to change something about your life. Stop telling yourself that you are who you are and embrace the fact that God, by his grace, will transform you into the image of Christ. Embrace what you can become. Stop refusing the grace of Him who is speaking. Oh, I'm, so, I'm, I'm caught in this sin again. I'm, I'm just not worthy. You are calling God a liar. When He says, whoever confesses their sin, He will forgive their sin and cleanse them from all unrighteousness. And stop accepting the world's morality for what it is. And radically rewire We need biblical morality, not cultural morality. And then repent and move on. Repent and move on. Stop being a target for the devil in terms of condemnation. Stop calling God a liar in terms of his plan for your life and his promises. Stop condemning yourself constantly for your sinfulness and focus on the fact that God is calling you out to be conformed to his image. And then stop letting the world and its pressure define who you are in terms of your faith. Christians are the people of God, even though they are guilty of failure at different times. Repentant sinners can be used by God, and there is no Christian who is not a repentant sinner. And so my closing encouragement to you is be wise, be repentant, strive for holiness, and always trust Christ. And do not allow yourself to be convinced that you are disqualified because you used to be a sinner and you occasionally see signs of that in your life. Instead, trust Christ and the gospel. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to hear your word. Thank you for the opportunity to explain it. I pray that that we would not say, well, I'm a sinner and so I sin. Instead, we would fight sin with all that's within us. But may we, when we sin, acknowledge your graciousness and your kindness and run from our sins run from our sinfulness but run toward you and your purpose and your plan there will be no one on that last day who will say i received the gospel and then lived a perfect life we will all say we stood by god's grace and by his kindness And we will all say that the Lord was patient and kind despite our sins. I pray that any here who have not trusted in Christ, who are seeking to stand on their own goodness and righteousness, would would repent and put their faith and trust in Christ. And I pray that each and every one of us, whatever the, the sin which so easily entangles is, would acknowledge the sinfulness of that and run from it. And walk and rest in the grace of God. We pray this in the precious name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing this closing song together.